Welcome to the Present Centered Life Podcast. In every episode, we talk about how to live your day-to-day life centered around the presence of God and the person of Jesus. We hope today's episode will stir up hunger for God in you. So we welcome you to the Present Centered Life Podcast. We are in our second series, Revivalists and Mystics, a conversation. You're listening to episode three, and today we are going to explore the theme of the joy of radical obedience from the life of St. Francis of Assisi. And I think this theme is actually going to carry over two episodes. We're going to talk about this in the life of St. Francis, and then we're also going to talk about in the next episode, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And St. Francis is interesting because he was both a mystic and a contemplative, but a reformer and a revivalist in his day who had a, a catalytic movement of, of reforming that happened in the region where he was and founding an order, a monastic order. And so we will jump into his story shortly. Hannah, there's a great definition that you put here, a definition for radical. Would you kick off today's episode by taking a moment to read that for us? Sure, Hazen. According to the Oxford Dictionary, radical is defined as relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something far-reaching, or thorough. I like that word, thorough. That kind of obedience, it really is more than just going through the motions, isn't it? Or convincing people around us that somehow we have godliness or fire. To truly be radical is not just an outward expression. It's a deep inward reality. It's a hidden obedience of the heart, something that's known only to God, the one who sees all. And I just want us to begin this session on the joy of radical obedience, thinking about those thoughts and taking a moment to pray. And then we're going to get into four assumptions that actually threaten total obedience. Hannah, would you mind praying for us as we enter into this time? Yes, we thank you, Father, today for the opportunity just to meditate on these truths, on how there is joy in radical obedience. There's joy in following you. And as we look on the lives of those who've gone before us, I pray for inspiration. We pray for impartation of faith. We pray for um, your enabling grace to, to walk in the specific, unique ways you've called each one of us to live before you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we have four assumptions that we have outlined and considered as we think about what can hinder radical obedience. And I'm just going to list them briefly and then let you expound on them. First, there's the assumption that outward actions are actually what equal total obedience. Secondly, the assumption that God's prescription or path is the same for every person. Thirdly, the assumption that the most extreme thing is automatically God. And then, fourthly, the assumption that the easiest thing or the way of most blessing is automatically God. So those are the four assumptions that we're going to explore in this episode as we look at the life of St. Francis. So first, let's jump in. Let's talk for a moment about the assumption that outward actions equals total obedience. Tell me, Hannah, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, why are we going to take a look at these assumptions and these things? thoughts or paradigms that can actually hinder the believer, that can hinder us from from total obedience to God. 
And I think the reason it's important to talk through these things is because as we're, we as humans, I think, are so quick to want to, to boil the life of faith down into a bunch of rules or to a formula that this plus this plus this equals radical obedience. Mm. And I think one thing that we discover by looking at the journeys and the, the life of faith of saints of old, biblical characters, is we see that no story is the same. And that, yes, there may be principles and there may be heart postures that facilitate a life that is wholly given to God. The road looks so different. And even I can speak from the experience of my own life, the road has looked so different from one season to another just within. I was going to say that. that You're going to say that? Yeah, from, it can look different from person to person, but it can within even a person's life look different from season to season because God ultimately wants us dependent on our relationship with Him. Absolutely. Not a formula. And sometimes we can get so accustomed. We aren't using a formula, but we're using assumptions on how it's been before or how it's worked in someone else's life. And so it's important to go after those various assumptions. Yes. And it feels like God is constantly wanting to, uh, to show us the places where we're relying on these tools or rules rather than relationship with him. And it's in his kindness that he shows us these things so that we can again return to that place of dependence. We don't want to depend on the tools or the rules. We want to depend on him and his presence. I think that's very well said. So coming back to I the wanted f- it to rhyme. I wanted you to rhyme there. I rhymed. I did it. I came no, through. No, you didn't finish the rhyme. Oh, I didn't finish the rhyme. Tools, rules, so that we are not fools. <laughs> okay. It's yeah. the best I can do. <laughs> so four assumptions that threaten total obedience. This first one, the assumption that outward actions equal total obedience. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, so I think this... This idea, it, what it, we, what, what it does is it just tears down the idea of religion. Religion is like that outward actions justifies you before God and justifies you before people. And this is really what Jesus um, hits so hard against in the Gospels and his attitude towards the Pharisees. Um, that sect of religious leaders in many ways defined defines this tendency that we as humans have to, to make everything into a list of rules and to, to fall back on the rules without truly having a genuine change of heart. And you can see the things that Jesus says to the Pharisees, you whitewash tombs, you know, and these incredible... He's it, very strong with them. Yes, these incredible images that are are, are horrible, you know, like you, you look, you have this appearance of godliness, but genuinely you're not. And so this is an assumption we have to, to address, like what we do outwardly, our outward actions, um, that doesn't necessarily equal total obedience. I remember one vivid example of this from the gospels is where uh, Caiaphas, the high priest has Jesus on trial and literally it's God before him and it's the high priest of God. And the man says, you know, accusation is brought against Jesus uh, that he's been claiming to be the son of God. And the high priest says, is it, is it as you say, do you, do you, are you saying that you're the son of God? 
And Jesus says, it is as you say. And when Jesus says this, it says he rips his garment in zeal and anger that he would uh, put himself as equal with God. And he says that it's blasphemy. And what's astounding in this, this picture of what you're describing is someone so filled with religious passion, but it's so misguided uh, because it's of the flesh and, and not truly of the spirit. He's, not, he's rooted in his practice and tradition. Not, and he's so zealous. You, people can become very zealous about their practice and tradition, and he's not actually zealous for God because if he really loved and was zealous for God, he would have recognized God in the flesh before him. I think Jeremiah 7.22 actually captures the same idea. It says, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. So God's saying, I, I, it, the, thing I didn't, the thing I didn't ask of them, the thing that's being offered, burnt sacrifice and offering, that's not actually what I commanded them. He says, but this is the command that I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I command you, that it may be well with you. And so in this we see the the willingness of the human heart to try and substitute religious practice for obedience to God's voice. And that's the point you're making, is that in radical obedience, we can't just equate outward action to total obedience. It's more the inclination of the heart towards the voice of God that he's looking for. Absolutely. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, So you can't look at a person's outward actions and know where their heart is before God. And like we, you can't, outward actions do not give an indication of that, but God knows. And to the as we talked about, radical means thorough, mm. far-reaching. Or radical obedience isn't just what the outward picture is, but is is it penetrating to the very core of desire and motivation mm. to what your real heart is before the Lord? So, outward actions doesn't totally always equal total obedience. That's the first assumption. Let's move on to the second. Can I just mention, reference one other verse? I, I can't place it, but just, I believe it's in the writings of Paul. He says, God loves a joyful giver. And it's striking that the description is not God loves a giver who gives lots of money. It's that he, he loves the one whose heart is joyful in the giving. And so God looks, he says this yeah, to Samuel with respect to David's brothers, as Samuel is called upon to anoint the least likely among the brothers, he sees one of David's older brothers and says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me, the one that should be king. And the Lord says, man does, man looks upon outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And so God is very concerned with the obedience of the heart. And that's what you quoted in First Samuel sixteen seven. Great. So the second assumption is God's prescription or path is the same for every person. So unpack that one a little bit. So is that true, that God's path is the same for every person? I thought it was till this podcast, but now I'm questioning my assumption. (laughs) So no, it's not. (laughs) 
all you need to do is just take a look at the lives of even the biblical figures and see that their their journey of obedience and faith is so varied, so diverse. For one thing, they're all starting off in in different places, you know, in different cultures. Some are male, some are female, and that has different parameters. There's just so much uniqueness and individuality to every situation. And to think that faith looks the same for every person and equals a certain thing is, um, is just limiting on the complexity of us as humans. And one example of this is even when you look at the way Jesus interacted with different figures throughout um, the gospel stories and what he said to them that they needed. And the thing that kind of comes to my mind is, firstly, when he talks to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, what did obedience look like for the rich young ruler? Hazen, you remember the story? You want to tell us here? (laughs) The rich young ruler, Jesus, who said, all the commands I've obeyed since my youth, Jesus says, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And it says that he went away sad because he was very wealthy and he didn't want to do that. Yeah, so for in that moment, obeying the voice of God for the rich young ruler looked like selling everything he had. Meanwhile, we have another wealthy character in the Bible who comes and seeks out Rabbi Jesus for direction on what he must do. And that is in, in Nicod- the, the character of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was also a figure of wealth and prestige similar to the rich young ruler, but Jesus doesn't call Nicodemus to sell and give away all of his wealth. Instead, Jesus is aware that the stronghold that keep that is keeping Nicodemus from total obedience is actually the one of his mind, of his intellect. And Jesus, in his call to Nicodemus to be born again, is reve- reveals to Nicodemus the his own the limitations of his own mental understanding, and Nicodemus hits up against that. I love that. So what you're saying in addressing this assumption, which is God's prescribed path for people is is never the same, is that God has an ability to speak to the exact place in our heart that is keeping us from radical obedience. And so in the case of the rich young ruler, it was his wealth that was keeping him from Mm -hmm. living wholeheartedly. In the case of Nicodemus, it was his own understanding and Jesus Mm -hmm. had to humble him and teach him a new way of thinking. Yeah. I think those are two great examples. So assumption three, the most extreme thing is automatically God. Say a little bit about that. And have we ever felt that way in our life? I can think of an example. I know that oftentimes, you know, we will, as a community, discern that it's time to do a fast. Mm -hmm. And immediately, especially in my youthful zeal, I'm not quite a as youthfully zealous as I was before, hopefully still zealous, just not youthfully zealous because I'm getting older. But in my youthful zeal, a lot of times I would just want to naturally do the most extreme thing. And I can't tell you how many different times the Lord spoke to me when my default position was to do the most extreme thing, to do the water fast or to do the, the most extreme uh, thing that seemed to be most sacrificial. 
And I remember at different times praying and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And oftentimes it looks very different than what I assume the most radical thing to do is. Truly the most radical thing oftentimes to do is to obey God because it addresses the places of pride mm-hmm. in our heart exactly. that we're not aware of or it addresses the places of uh, of not loving well or whatever the, the situation might be. I can remember in particular one time where we were we were uh, stepping into a fast and I remember wanting to do the most radical thing and I remember God speaking to us that it was better for us to do something together than it was for me or for either one of us to do a more radical thing. And I remember, I think that was the mush fast we did, which is where we did grits. And just we said, anything that's mushy is what we'll eat for this period of time. And it ended up being one of the most spiritually enriching fasts. It's true. Because we did it together and we're able to do it together rather than either one of us doing the more extreme thing on our own. And so just a great example where the extreme thing is not always the thing that God is inviting us to do. Yeah. So the good scripture that highlights this is in 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So I want to ask a hypothetical question. Is it better for me to give more money in an offering, or is it better for me to listen for the voice of God and perhaps give less? And of course, we know the example from this verse that we just read, or we know the right answer from the verse that we just read, that it's better to hear the voice of God. But I just think of, to put that in our own language and context, what the Lord's saying is, better than offering some extravagant sacrifice, God wants us to hear our, hear His voice and be connected to Him at the heart. And so it would be better for us to give less, because maybe God has some other purpose for our money that we don't, that's unforeseen. Mm-hmm. And it's better for us to be obedient rather than to do the thing that is most extreme. An example being, as we give our offerings, we pray and discern what God is inviting us to do because we want to live out obedience connected to his voice. I just feel like that's a word for somebody that's out there listening that has felt pressure in your heart to give the most extravagant gift because you feel like that's what's most pleasing to God. And I just want to invite you into a conversation with God about it because he wants to talk to you because he loves you and he wants your life to be guided and directed by his voice and to be open to the impression of the Lord as he would speak to you and guide you. Great. So for our last assumption, this is in contrast to obedience isn't always the most extreme thing. It's also true that obedience is not always the easiest thing or the way of most blessing. You mean God is not a cosmic butler who just wants to serve my every whim? (laughs) No, Hazen. (laughs) Which I think most of us know that. But And we wouldn't say that out loud, but we would tend to think, perhaps, and I think that as a prosperity gospel is propagated in the West, there's a tendency to think that the way of most blessing is always the will of God. Yeah. John 16, 33. I've told you those things so that in me you may have peace, but in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that is this idea that we are going to have hardship and difficulty as a part of following God because Mm -hmm. the kingdoms of this world have not yet fully become the kingdoms of our Lord. 
and of his Christ. And we don't follow protocols. We don't follow the path of most blessing. We don't follow formulas. We follow a person. We look to him. We listen for his voice. We sacrifice in the ways he invites us to sacrifice. We suffer in the ways he invites us to suffer. And we give in the ways and serve in the ways he calls us to give because our lives are not our own. Yes, total obedience is hearing his voice and saying yes, no matter what it is. So in summary, as we kind of wrap up these four assumptions, assumption one, that our outward actions equals total obedience. Uh, Assumption two, that God's prescription or path is the same for every person. Assumption three, that the most extreme thing is automatically God. And then assumption four, that it's the easiest thing or the way of most blessing that's automatically God. As we have deconstructed and talked through those assumptions, we just want to conclude with this point. There is no formula. There's not a rule book. There's only a man. We don't follow protocols, but we follow a person. We look to him and we listen for his voice. We hear him and we follow him in faith. And you know, honestly, sometimes our hearing and our following can be so weak. But God is more concerned about the sincerity of our hearts than us getting it right 100% of the time. Our obedience isn't primarily measured outwardly. It's measured by the inclination of our heart towards loving God and doing what he has asked us to do. Are we doing what Jesus Christ has called us to do? And yes, there are general principles in scripture of behavior and standards for all believers. But beyond the principles, are we specifically walking in obedience to the voice of God as it relates to us personally and in the context of our church community? John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. John 5.19, the son can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. And so we're going to see an example of these principles of obeying and following the voice of God, even in radical ways in the life of Francis of Assisi. He was the son of a very wealthy merchant, He was a person who G.K. Chesterton actually says of St. Francis, he was a poet whose entire life was a poem. He's, of course, the originator of the popular saying, do all you can to preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And in the very best way, this was how he lived. He was born in the late 1181 period and the son of a prosperous silk merchant in Italy. He lived a high-spirited life, typical of a wealthy young man, handsome, gallant, delighting in fine clothes and spending money lavishly. But even in that, his heart was drawn to the poor. In one account of this season of his life, Francis was actually selling cloth and velvet in the marketplace for his father when he saw a beggar asking for money. And at the conclusion of this business transaction, Francis abandons his, his items that he's there to sell, runs after the beggar, and gives him everything that's in his pockets. His friends and his father actually mocked and scolded him, uh, thinking that his, his generosity was actually recklessness. Francis grew up during a time of constant warfare, and around 1202, he joined a military expedition was, and was then taken as a prisoner, spending a year as a captive. 
and this was the first time he began to reflect on his manner of life and the choices that he had made. He had made. And after being released, he went back to living in the lavish ways uh, that he had been living before as the son of a wealthy merchant. But when he was about 25 years old, another war broke out. And like many other soldiers from Italy, Francis decided to join the army. And he spent a small fortune preparing the clothing, armor, equipment that he would need for battle. And he set out in haste towards a city in southern Italy. Along the way, he met a knight who was dressed in rags and moved with compassion. Francis actually removed all his embroidered garments that he was wearing. He gave them to the other knight. And that evening, when he goes to sleep, he has a dream. And in the dream, his father's house is filled with weapons and soldiers. And he sees a beautiful princess who's going to be his bride. When he awoke, he was momentarily filled with joy, but after some reflection, he was very troubled because he realized the dream did not symbolize earthly honor and glory, but symbolized something that he had not yet attained or pursued. So he journeys on, and the next night he stops, and he hears a voice in a dream as he's sleeping. Francis, who do you want to serve, the master or the servant? And he answered, the master. Francis didn't ask for clarification, but he simply obeyed that voice from that moment on, and his conversion began. While he slept, he heard a voice telling him to go back to his own country, where it would be revealed to him what he should do next. The following day, he returned to Assisi, where it became obvious to the people who knew him that he was a changed man. As was their custom, Francis's friends asked him to throw a party, and he did, but he could no longer enjoy the carousing and drinking. The encounters that he had had with the voice of God had changed him. Late that night, as everyone left the banquet hall, he began to pray, and his biographer, Thomas Seleno, writes. And Hannah, would you actually read that quote for us? Yeah, sure. Then it was that divine grace came upon him, enlightening him as to the nothingness of earth's vanities and revealing to him the invisible realities. Suddenly, he was inundated with such a torrent of love, submerged in such sweetness, that he stood there motionless, neither seeing nor hearing anything. In time, he lost all taste for business, and gradually he was seen to withdraw from the world. So after this revelation that you just read the quote from his biography, nothing of the world could satisfy him, and he could only find contentment in the things of God. He didn't even yet know exactly what God was calling him to do, but he began to spend time in prayer and meditation, and, and this really was the season of his conversion, trusting that God would show him the way. He spent time in solitary places asking God for spiritual insight, and after a period of time, he actually has a mystical vision of Jesus in the forsaken count, country chapel of San Damiano, just outside of Assisi. And as he's in the chapel praying, a vision of Christ speaks to him and says, Francis, Francis, go and repair my church, which as you can see is falling into ruins. So what Francis did was he took this to mean that the ruined church in which he was praying, uh, that he was supposed to restore that church. And so he sold some clothes from his father's store to assist the priest of that chapel. And his father actually later sues him for the money and that resulted in a great family conflict. And Francis renounces his family and his inheritance, and he commits himself to a life of poverty and having no possessions. And Francis' example actually, over time, attracts others because he was so free and joyful, even though he was completely dispossessed 
of any earthly material possessions. Many men and women rose up who actually began to follow in his footsteps, and a a group of like-minded men and women gathered around him, and a simple order was created, and they spent their time preaching the gospel and then begging, and they would use the money that they collected to rebuild broken and ruined churches across Italy. And their one rule was to follow the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in his footsteps. St. Clair would become a close spiritual friend to St. Francis, and she would, though she came from a similar background, she would also renounce all wealth and honor, and she led the women's division of what would become the Franciscan order. Francis took the invitations from the Sermon on the Mount to live surrendered and free, very literally. He totally entrusted himself to God's care, and he lived in such freedom and joy with doing the will of God as the primary purpose of his life. He is someone who is exemplary of of what we were talking about earlier. He didn't necessarily live in the assumption of the most radical thing or the life of most blessing. He lived devoted to the voice of God and being obedient to God's leadership as the Lord led him day by day. And though he made deep commitments to radical obedience, those commitments came out of encounter and intimacy with God. And so, Hannah, would you be willing to kind of draw out some of the main ideas from the life of St. Francis and give a few quotes to us? Yeah, some of the main ideas that we can draw from St. Francis's life when we hear the story of renouncing material wealth and privilege and just totally putting himself at the mercy of God for his daily needs being met. Some of the main ideas, one is total open-handedness and dependence on the will of God and the care of God. Secondly, a renunciation of all possessions, total entrustment into the care of God, care for the poor, and then his life was one that was marked by immense freedom and joy. So with that, some touching on the main ideas, I'm going to read some quotes and We can read these together, Hazen. My dear and beloved brother, the treasure of blessed poverty is so very precious and divine that we are not worthy to possess it in our vile bodies. For poverty is that heavenly virtue by which all earthly and transitory things are trodden underfoot and by which every obstacle is removed from the soul so that it may freely enter into union with the eternal Lord God. It is also the virtue which makes the soul, while still here on earth, converse with the angels in heaven. It is she who accompanied Christ on the cross, was buried with Christ in the tomb, and with Christ was raised and ascended into heaven. For even in this life, she, we're talking about poverty here, gives to souls who love her the ability to fly to heaven, for poverty alone guards the armor of true humility and charity. I love that quote. This next one, holy obedience confounds all bodily and fleshly desires and keeps the body mortified to the obedience of the spirit and to the obedience of one's brother and makes a man subject to all the men of this world and not to men alone, but also to all the beasts and wild animals so they may do with him whatsoever they will in so far as it may be granted to them from above by the Lord. And so the idea is that that he completely submitted himself in every way 
making himself a servant to all in the same manner that Christ considered himself a servant. Not just uh, human beings, but he considered himself a servant to all creation. Mm -hmm. This next quote, Above all, the grace and the gifts that Christ gives to his beloved is that of overcoming self. And then listen to this next one. He says, What do you have to fear? Nothing. Whom do you have to fear? No one. Why? Because whoever has joined forces with God obtains three great privileges. Omnipotence without power, intoxication without wine, and life without death. Reminds me that that quote reminds me of Romans 8, that we have overwhelmingly conquered through him yeah. who loves us. Neither life nor death, angel nor demon, nothing created or uncreated can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Love this quote. Keep a clear eye towards life's end. Do not forget your purpose and destiny as God's creature. What you are in his sight is what you are and nothing more. Remember that when you leave this earth, you can take nothing that you have received, but only what you have given. A full heart enriched by honest service, love, sacrifice, and courage. This last quote here. A man who works with his hands as a laborer. A man who works with his hands and his head is a craftsman. A man who works with his hands, his head, and his heart is an artist. The invitation of these quotes is to truly live a transcendent life, one that is fixed, in the words of Colossians 3, on things above, not on the things of this earth. And I think that's the real gift of radical obedience that St. Francis's life exemplifies and that the challenge that he gives to us as we consider what it is to discover the joy of radical obedience. And I think a lot of times we can look at the radical obedience and a lot of times we find the, the invitation to action in the radical obedience renunciation of possessions or giving to the poor, whatever the, the act of obedience may look like. Mm -hmm. But we forget their emphasis when they're describing these things, ones like St. Francis is on the joy that they found in the midst. What they're wanting to tell you about is how joyful it is if you'll only be willing to take the risk. And so I want to leave us with that thought as we conclude this, our third episode on Mystics and Revivalists, A Conversation. This has been a great segue into this conversation, The Joy of Radical Obedience. We're going to pick that up and continue that with our next episode as we look at Dietrich, the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Great thoughts from the life of St. Francis of Assisi and a great discussion around the four assumptions that hold us back from radical obedience. So we're going to close with a moment of prayer right now. Thank you for listening. So God, we come to you right now, Hannah and I, and those listening in agreement, God, asking for the joy of radical obedience in the heart of every person, and that we would take this key of hearing God's voice. Just as the life of St. Francis was was drawn out by an encounter and led by an encounter with the voice of God. And he continued daily in communion and relationship with you, giving generously in obedience to you. Lord, I pray in the same way that we would discover a generous heart out of relationship and out of fellowship with you, Lord. And so I pray, God, though we may not have the same call to give up our material possessions, let us count nothing as our own. And at the heart level, embrace this reality that all that we have is yours, God. And we make that commitment to you by your grace, Lord. Uh, Hannah and I and our family, we say all that we have and all that we are, our time, 
talent and treasure is all yours, Jesus. Would you use it however you want? And I invite you into that radical prayer today, a radical prayer of surrender that you might discover true transcendent joy, that Jesus, everything I have is yours, Lord. Show me how to use it for your kingdom. Amen. Amen.